Good morning, Hill family. If you have a Bible, please open it to Acts chapter 24. If you didn't bring one with you, please find one around you. Acts chapter 24 is where we will be today. If you are new to the Hill, welcome. My name is Jimmy. I am one of the pastors here. It is a privilege to lead you in the preaching of God's Word. One announcement before we dive into the text. We do have corporate prayer tonight. Please be there. We have child care provided for you. We will also share a meal afterwards. The church will provide the meat. You will provide the sides or you will only eat meat. So please bring your sides tonight and we will enjoy some fellowship. What's that? That's not true? Oh, you got to bring all the food. No, we have the whole meal. Oh, look at that. I don't know what's going on here. Just come. We're going to feed you everything. Okay, so just come. All right, so just be here. We have prayer tonight. Child care is provided. Just come and eat. All right. Acts chapter 24. few phrases are more frustrating to me. Maybe you will testify to this than when you hear, let me connect you to customer service. Upon hearing those words, you can guarantee that at least an hour of your life is fixing to be stolen from you. After that initial wait time, you move past that elevator music, a pleasant voice will meet you on the other end who you can already tell lives on another continent. Poor guy probably handles everything from microwaves to internet routers, alarm systems, and roof gutters in terms of what his job covers. He's as confused as you are when you pick up the phone. Eventually, after capturing way too much of your personal information, you begin explaining the type of product you have, the problems that you're encountering, The kind service representative takes all the information down. You can hear him typing. And then he says, let me put you on hold. You don't get disconnected in that transitional process. Eventually you're greeted by a second pleasant voice. But instead of picking up the conversation where you left off, you have to start all over. Giving all of your information again. Explaining the issue all over again the second time. person, though, this time seems a bit more helpful As they apologize for the inconvenience, they reassure you of their help, and they tell you they're going to get a supervisor to call you back. That supervisor does call you back. But interestingly, he begins by asking the same questions as the previous two guys, leaving you wondering what the other two guys were typing in the background as you were listening to them. Do they not know how to save what they wrote down? For the third time, you're asked to retell the details of the situation, and at that point, the situation really turns sour When they tell you, oh, this is a warranty issue, let me direct you to the warranty department. Now you have a decision to make at that point. Either you'll continue down this path and probably pull all your hair out, or you just go to Amazon and decide how much will it cost to replace this issue you're trying to get fixed. Look, while the details over the last few weeks have been eternally more significant than what I just explained, Surveying the Apostle Paul's situation has seemed a bit similar to this reality. Upon arriving in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 22, the Jews wasted no time falsely accusing and nearly killing Paul. Thankfully, the Roman tribune stepped in to rescue Paul, allowing him to make a public defense before this crowd. 
In the next week, in chapter 23, or at least last week in chapter 23, Paul was paraded before the crowd a second time, forced to make really the same defense against the same accusations all over again. And this again brought zero resolution to the situation. This morning, this fiasco continues. Three times in chapters 24 and 25, Paul is forced to make his case again. Twice publicly, once privately, and nothing will be resolved in the end of it all. Paul will then be dismissed and sent to Rome. But unlike my customer service process, Providence is leading Paul forward. Providence is providing Paul platforms upon which he can retell the message of Jesus and clarify Jesus' role in redemptive history. Paul's pain produces progress for the church. And throughout all of Paul's testimony, this morning his message will have a a singular or kind of an underlying clear presentation in it. And it's this, that Jesus, He is the righteous Son. He's the only means of true worship and the way of salvation. Jesus is the righteous Son. He's the only means of true worship. And He's the way of salvation. Father, guard our time as we dive into Your Word this morning. We hear a clear testimony of the Gospel this morning and we hear a man, sadly, who is terrified, is overcome by the reality of the righteousness of God in his own sin and yet he makes the awful decision to justify what he hears and walk away. God, may that not be said of anybody in this room unbeliever or believer alike. Lord, as we are confronted by Your text this morning, Holy Spirit, show us. Convict us. Help us to respond in obedience and faith this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. We left off last week with the Roman governor Felix. Um, He had decided, if we remember, he decided that Paul, his his upcoming trial was going to happen not in Not in Jerusalem, but in Caesarea. And he ordered that Paul would be guarded in Herod's praetorium until the accusers in Jerusalem would arrive. Well, this morning in chapter 24, as we'll begin, that time has come. And their central charge as the Jewish leadership come to the city, it concerns the nature of Paul's worship. So we'll consider first the worship explained here in the first 23 verses of chapter 24. Put your eyes on verse 1 here. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. The power players from Jerusalem, who we've been introduced to the last few weeks, they now arrive. And this time, they've brought along with them their top gun legal expert, Tertullus. And after conversing with the governor, their hired hand, he will now publicly present their charges, their case, in verse 2. As they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse Paul, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. From the opening line or his introduction, it's clear Tertullus Tertullus is of top brass. He's a polished Roman attorney. 
And he begins by buttering up Felix here. And in one sense, this, is, this way of address is the conventional way of the Romans during this time. Coming from the Jews, though, that's who he represents. It rings with a note of irony. Like Jews would not accept the excellency of Felix, or any Roman official. And Roman peace was the furthest thing from what they desired. But as we've seen at every turn, honesty takes a back seat in accomplishing and in them trying to accomplish their political purposes. So Tertullus opens with three strategic charges against Paul in verses 5 to 8. He says in verse 5, For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. And he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. So the Jews have cleverly crafted their defense with Tertullus. Rome had zero tolerance for troublemakers and riot instigators. So their opening charge that Paul is a plague, that he's a social menace, that he's a troublemaker is a serious one. With a a note or a bit of exaggeration, they identify Paul as the one who stirs up riots among the Jews all throughout the Roman world. Riots did follow Paul a couple places, but Paul didn't start riots. Paul preached the gospel, and riots came about for them not standing or could not be enabled to accept the truth. One of the Roman leaders' primary task was to maintain order and peace. Politically, the Jews had always posed the problem to the empire. And the weight of that kind of reality fell on the shoulders of local leadership. Similar to the accusations leveled against Jesus before Pilate, the Jews are here trying to incite the governor by accusing Paul of being a threat to the stability of the nation. And in turn, guess what, Felix? Your very job security. Up to Annie, they deem him a ringleader or a commander, maybe your translation says, of this new sect or this cult of the Nazarenes. In other words, Paul's the head honcho of this sketchy group connected to Jesus. So, if you want to do your job, Felix, if you want to maintain order, if you want to squash this whole thing, we've brought you the very guy. Take care of it. But their third charge was really meant to be the dagger. Verse 6. He tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. This charge is serious on every front for Paul. To profane or desecrate the temple was a capital punishment under Jewish law. To bring a a Gentile into the temple, as Paul was being falsely accused of, was an act of deliberate desecration deserving death. This is a serious charge. Paul's life is on the line here in terms of the Jewish law. But not just according to Jewish law. Every Roman ruler knows that if you wanted to get the Jews riled up, if you wanted to cause a commotion and a ruckus and an uprising, go mess with their temple. That will really set them off. If you want to riot, you want to draw attention from the hirelings, the the people in charge in Rome, go mess with the temple. Political stability was tied to protecting the temple in Jerusalem. The charges are strategically serious here. 
And to make sure Felix understands the Jews mean business, verse 9, look at it. It says, the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming all these things were so. But now in verse 10, Paul is given the chance to provide his defense. Something the Jews, who are supposedly upholding God's law, would not, have not been willing to allow him to do up to this point. Be- <clears throat> Beginning in verse 10, Paul makes his kind of threefold defense to counter their threefold accusation. Verse 10, And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replies, Knowing that for many years you have brought a, uh, you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Paul offers a few pleasantries himself, but he just says, Hey, I know you've been a judge for a while, so hey, I'll be, I'll be quick here. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to, to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogue or in any of the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. Paul tackles each accusation point by point. And before we kind of unpack those, we should step back and just admire the sovereign hand of God that's present in this scene. No one is more uniquely equipped to stand before this crowd at this moment and make a defense for the Christian faith than the Apostle Paul. Paul was a Roman citizen possessing an elite education, trained as an order, and he was a Jewish scholar who stood head and shoulders over his or above his contemporaries. And providentially, God will use all of this to demantle dismantled the accusations leveled at him. Similar to Moses in, the, in, in his generation, who was raised in the house of Pharaoh, where he was fit to play the role of Israel's redeemer, Paul has been uniquely gifted for this moment. And rather than cowering to the skills and the abilities of Tertullus, Paul takes this brother to task. He's going to dismantle his argument. Piece, point by point. First off, he says, it's only been 12 days ago when I went up to worship in the temple, most of which I've been under arrest. (laughs) And you can verify, they did not find me disputing anyone. I was not stirring up any trouble. I was not causing any sort of riot in the temple, synagogue, and anywhere. They have zero evidence to support this case. If anyone is guilty of these accusations, it is them. In verse 14, we really, though, find the center of Paul's defense. And I really think the center of this whole section. Paul says, now that you got me on trial, now that you've afforded me this platform to testify freely, he says, I I do have something to confess. Verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and the prophets, laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Paul's confession here serves two important purposes. 
First, it demonstrates the accusations being leveled at him are nothing more than a inner religious debate deserving of no such charges presented. In terms of Felix and Roman law, what they're saying carries no weight. And Paul is here also, he, he's effectively exposing the Jewish leadership for doing what they were trying to do to Pilate, trying to use Roman authority to solve their disgruntled religious issues. But secondly, Paul's confession affords him the opportunity to openly defend what he believes concerning the person and work of Jesus. And his confession concerns his fidelity of worship through Jesus. He confesses his fidelity to the God of our fathers. See, you, to the God that we, confess, that we pro- proclaim. And fidelity to the law and the prophets, the word. As he says, according to the way which they call a sect. So Paul embraces this identifying marker of the way in order to distance himself from the derogatory title, this sect, this cult of the Nazarenes. The way was a title that grew out of early Christianity, which defined Jesus as the way to God, as the only way of salvation. But it also grew directly out of the Old Testament, as Paul is confessing here. We believe everything laid down by the law and the prophets. The title, The, the Way, depicted the identity of, us, of this new group of people belonging to a, a new exodus whom God is calling out from all the nations. And this way is led by the true Redeemer, Jesus. And this way is not in opposition to Judaism at all. This way embodies faithfulness to Judaism. Paul's defense uh, concerning the accusations of him proclaiming the worship of Yahweh in the temple is that through Jesus, he is in fact truly worshiping Yahweh in accordance to both the law and the prophets. In Jesus is found the true hope of Israel. Jesus is the true embodiment of the resurrection. And Jesus is the true dividing line between those who are just and the unjust. Verse 16, Paul says, he takes pains to keep a clear conscience before God and man. In other words, Paul confesses, I am guilty this day. But I'm not guilty of what they are accusing me of. Paul confesses to the Roman leaders and to the Jewish leaders here that I am guilty of remaining faithful to God as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. Paul is here confessing Jesus as the true means, the only way to God, to receiving salvation and truly worshiping the Father. Paul is here reflecting what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 concerning worship. Upon feeling the weight of her sin and believing that Jesus must at least be a prophet she posed the theological question of her day concerning worship. Where? In what place? On what mountain does true worship of God take place, she asked. 
Jews say that true worship can only happen in their temple on that mountain. We as Samaritans say true worship happens on this temple and on that mountain, on this mountain. So what is it, Jesus, she says? You want to talk about finding living water for my soul? That's what he was talking about. Then tell me where I can truly worship God. In John 4.21, Jesus responds with some of the most life-altering words we can ever hear concerning the true nature of worship. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You, will, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Central to Jesus' argument concerning true worship is that phrase He used twice, the hour is coming. It's a reference in John's Gospel to the cross. It's a reference to the coming death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus was saying that following My death, worship of the Father, the one true God, will no longer be bound to any place, any geographical location on the map. Not on this mountain, not on that mountain. It will be bound up with a person. Namely, Himself. Just a few verses later, in light of this conversation, this woman looks at Jesus and says, I know when Messiah comes, He'll clear all this up. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am He. True worship of God comes solely through the person and work of Jesus. Paul is confessing that according to the law and the prophets, Jesus is the only way to the Father. He is the only true means of worship. Beloved, the Old Testament is not something for the Jews and the New Testament for Christians. No. The Old Testament is our text. The Old Testament reveals to us Jesus. The Old Testament defines for us who Jesus is. It explains His person and His work that we see unfolding in the New Testament. Paul is saying, I'm being faithful as a Jew by reading the Old Testament and coming to this conclusion about Jesus. I confess that. This is what it means to truly worship the God of our fathers according to the way of Jesus. Now in verses 17 to 21, Paul presents the real reason why he's in Jerusalem and why he showed up to the temple. He says, 17, Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. Paul was present in Jerusalem to bring an offering, a charitable gift, as we mentioned, an offering to benefit the city, namely the Christian church in Jerusalem. And rather than entering the temple to defame it as they're claiming Paul says I came in for the purpose of purification he says thirdly I wasn't alone I was alone there was no crowd with me there was no uprising that happened and then he raises the stake in verse 19 but some Jews from Asia they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. 
Other than this one thing I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. This is Paul's sort of mic drop moment, maybe we would say. He really disassembles their argument here. He says, where's your evidence? Like the original accusers, where are they at? Roman law took seriously a wrongful accusation of someone apart from evidence and proof, especially wrongful accusation of a Roman citizen. Paul says, where are these so-called Jews from Asia who raised these accusations? No. Here's the problem. The one thing on trial here is their disagreement with my understanding of the Old Testament regarding the resurrection of the dead. And Jesus as the fulfillment of such hope. Tertullus had clearly underestimated Paul. And we know this because of verse 22. But Felix, having a rather acute knowledge of the way Christianity was getting out, he put them off saying, Lysus, the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Knowing the Jews have no case, Felix basically said, I'll get back to you. Let me talk to the tribune. We'll let you know what you decide, what we decide. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So Paul is in prison still, but he has the ability to move and to have some freedom there. So we turn down to verses 24 to 27. We see now we go from this public trial now to this private trial kind of interrogation he gets. So the witness, we kind of see a a heading we might look at as a witness displayed here. Verses 24 to 27, Felix decides to interview Paul with his wife, Drusilla, a Jewish woman. And given her Jewish upbringing, maybe Felix believes she could be of help here. Um, And this merely affords Paul, though, the opportunity again on another platform to testify to Jesus further. But I think it is important to at least draw out a little bit of background of this couple, which helps clarify the importance of Paul's testimony here. So Felix was a former slave turned governor. Very uncommon. And he ruled harshly, being known for his brutality. Josephus, the the Jewish historian, records repeated instances of him crucifying leaders of various uprisings which sprang up under his reign often. Tacitus, another historian of the time, described him as a, quote, master of cruelty and lust who exercised the power of a king with the spirit of a slave. And Drusilla was his third wife. She was the youngest daughter of King Agrippa I. And known for her beauty and her ambition, she won Felix's attention while married to another man whom she left for Felix. So this pairing was very public. And it was a... Roman soap opera, to say the least. Drusilla also, though the text says, was raised as a Jew. Though obviously she, had, she was no longer practicing her faith. In verse 24, this feared and powerful couple, they send for Paul to question him in private. And the first thing we see is the clarity with which Paul speaks. Verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he, spent, he, and he, and he sent for Paul and he heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. 
Well, I'm sure they asked lots of questions about what had taken place and why Jesus, why the Jews wanted him bad, dead so bad. Why did they set this plot for you? Why were they going to ambush you? All these kind of things. What Luke saw was important to summarize regarding this was Paul's message of faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's clear in the message of Jesus, not just the historic reality of Jesus, not just reality of what he'd done in his life, but faith in Jesus being necessary. And his clarity was matched by his boldness, verse 25. And he responded, and he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment. So beyond personal salvation, faith in Jesus, Paul pressed personal morality, righteousness, self-control in the coming judgment. Considering the background of these two individuals who literally hold the keys to Paul's life here, Paul doesn't back down at all. He spells out the holiness of God which demands our righteousness. And he leaned into self-control, something the evidence of this pairing demonstrated they lacked. And finally, he spoke of the coming judgment. Nobody, Roman rulers included, will escape divine accountability. God will judge all mankind. No one, beloved, is served through simplistic presentations of the Christian faith which sidestep the issue of sin and the reality of God's judgment. The law reveals the righteousness of God. And the law reveals, therefore, the righteous demands that it places on all of us. The law provides proof that God is holy. And the law also reveals that in and of ourselves we are not. We cannot keep the law. The law exposes, exposes our unrighteousness, or as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, it testifies that there is none righteous, no, not one. The law testifies that we stand guilty before the righteous judge of all the earth. And the question of worship, the question of the resurrection of the just and the unjust, the question that looms over every person in every religion, in the conscience of every single person born, is how can sinful, unrighteous people stand before a holy, righteous God? Upon what basis do you believe as a sinner? You have the right to stand before God. It is that question, the question of eternal significance, that Felix feels and that everyone has to ask. Verse 25 reads, Felix was alarmed. Maybe you have terrified, convicted. And he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So Paul's words, they moved Felix. He was, he was convicted. He was alarmed. He was, he was terrified, the text says. The truth of God's Word weighed heavy upon his heart. Felix felt the weight of the scales of God's justice. His judgment due him. Truth confronted him. And a decision laid before him. Would he respond honestly to the truth? 
Or would he suppress the truth in unrighteousness? And sadly, Felix chose the second route. He says he sent Paul away as if by doing so he could avoid the whole situation. Felix chose the deceptive path of spiritual procrastination. Conviction is meant to lead to correction in our lives. But this only happens when conviction brings repentance that leads to or produces obedience. Spiritual procrastination is a dangerous thing, both in terms of salvation for a non-Christian and for Christians in terms of sanctification. For one, none of us are promised that we will hear the same truth again. The Bible is clear, today is the day of salvation. Psalm 95 says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. The offer of God's salvation is a sheer act of His grace. It's not deserved you or me. You have no right to believe upon hearing it and walking away from it, you'll hear it again. God's grace is not something to be peddled. Trust the Lord today. Jesus spells out the principles of His economy regarding truth when He says, for the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Matthew 13, 12. When the Spirit convicts us as believers, we must respond by faith. We must respond in repentance Or we run the risk of suffering spiritual loss. For truth not acted upon can harden our hearts in such a way it makes us unable to respond in the future. We tend to tell ourselves a lie. I know it's not just me. That we'll respond to that truth later as if that in itself is not a response to truth. There's no such thing as a non-response to spiritual truth. Justifying your lack of obedience is disobedience. No one hears the truth and is unchanged by it. We are either softened to obedience or we are hardened in our unbelief. And the conflicting, sad state of Felix's heart is seen in verse 26. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. I don't know what he means here. Maybe he knew that Paul was bringing an offering to Jerusalem. So he thought, Paul has some money here. Maybe I can have these conversations, be a friend with him, play with him, and get some money out of him. So he sent for him often and he conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now it's easy when we read our Bible, we just jump past white spaces in our Bible. Two years reflects Paul's life in prison here. 
Two years. He was abandoned, forgotten, overlooked by man, but not by God. Felix had many conversations with Paul, hoping to extract some money from him, but eventually Felix's day in office comes to an end, knowing of Paul's innocence. He knows he's innocent. He just uses him for a political pond, seeking to appease the Jews. He left him in prison. Paul sat in the Roman prison, but providence attended to Paul as the next man took office. So as we move to verses 25 to the end, chapter 25, I should say, to the end, we're going to see providence revealed here. This final section offers us really no new information to the narrative. I'll say that. Studying this text is where the customer service process for me came to mind. It's like uh, no resolution is in sight here. And yet, through it all, the details of the providential hand of God are found unfolding the plan of Paul's life right before us. Festus, the governor, heads to Jerusalem three days after his arrival in Judea to meet with the Jewish leadership who accused Paul, who, who discussed Paul's case with him and urged him to have Paul brought back to Jerusalem. So they carry out their original plan of ambush to ambush him on the way. They're hoping that maybe, maybe Felix didn't tell Festus about this plan. Maybe we can just get it back, reenactment, and get it going. Verse 1, now three days later after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. They urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning to ambush him, to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. So Festus turns their plot down. He tells them, hey, come to Jerusalem. I mean, come to Caesarea. And if you would like to present charges against him, you can do it there. So after a short stay in Jerusalem, he heads to Caesarea to sit on his seat of judgment and hear the two sides again. Verse 6, And after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next time he took his seat on the tribunal, on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Again, same thing. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Same thing. Even though there's no evidence, though, of any wrongdoing on the part of Paul, that's this place, politics, again, asking Paul, you want to go, just go to Jerusalem? Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before you? We see here, again, we've been watching this parallel of Jesus' life and Paul's. We see here again this pressure being applied to the governor as it was with Pilate. He just wants to appease the Jews. Like, I just, this is, I don't even want to make a decision here. I just want to get this out of my hands. And they're applying that pressure to him. Verse 10, but Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried to the Jews I have done no wrong as you yourselves know very well if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die I do not seek to escape death Paul's an honest man test me and see if I've done anything wrong tell me I'm not trying to escape death make it clear but there is nothing to these charges against me no one can give me up to them I appeal to Caesar 
And Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Paul again lays himself honestly before Festus. If you can find anything, let me know. I'm not trying to escape punishment. But since you know I am blameless, I will not be given over to these people, he says. I appeal to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, Paul had a right to be tried in Rome where the highest official court would have to make a ruling and render judgment. And this comes, I think, as a relief to Festus. He's good. He's like, man, I ain't got to deal with this. This It's an easy way out for him. Caesar, you feel? Caesar, you can go. And as I said when we started this at the top, while it's true not much content is added to this narrative here, we don't learn anything other than Paul's going to to Rome, which that was what he's planning on doing anyway. This scene is important, though, because the plan for Paul to get to Rome is now put into motion. Paul's, God's plan is unfolding, which again calls attention to the providential hand over, his providential hand over Paul's life. While I'm sure Paul could have, would have rather mapped out a different trajectory for his role up to Rome, especially one that didn't include two, that didn't include a prison stint. Exactly what God promised is happening. He's headed to Rome, where he will testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And from a natural lens here, Paul is merely a political pawn in this story, being ping ponged around. But from a heavenly lens, the schemes of these men and their striving serves as instruments in the hand of a sovereign God, accomplishing His very purposes in history. The same application from last week lands in our lap again here. God knows what He's doing. God knows what He's doing in the world. And Christian, God knows what He's doing in your life. And Paul the prisoner, under the providential hand of God, sets his own plan in motion here. We're going to see this later in Paul's narrative on the ship when he's tied up. He's the prisoner when in fact God uses him to direct the whole events going forward. Under the sovereign hand of God, Paul is the one moving the narrative forward. The prisoner. To Caesar, you appeal. To Caesar, you go. I think, as we step back, this scene provides us with a, a portrait of the gospel that I really think brings this story together. It provides us of a portrait of the gospel by pulling back the curtain and exposing the economy of God's kingdom in redemptive history. By the willful rebellion of man, God's perfect plan of redemption is being fulfilled in this story. God's perfect plans for Paul's life are being fulfilled in light of and through the evil, wicked plans of men. Paul's life provides a portrait of the gospel message just as Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Probably... Some of these same men were present when Peter proclaimed in Acts chapter 2, verses 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty words and wonders and signs that God did through him in your own midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. How can man, sinful man, stand before a righteous God? How can sinners worship the one true God of all the earth? According to the way. According to the definite plan of God in the Gospel. That's how. And Jesus is found the definite plan of God for all mankind. Jesus is the only way sinners can be made right with God and truly worship Him. As a sheer act of grace, God the Father delivered up His divine Son according to His divine plan into the hands of sinful men who in turn crucified the Lord of glory. And yet providentially, by so doing, set in motion the perfect plan of God. Jesus, the righteous Son, the only One without sin, and therefore deserving judgment for sin, died a criminal's death as a substitute for sin. And this He did in fulfillment of the law and the prophets testifying that this has always been God's plan. And he rose victoriously, loosing the pangs of death, for it was not possible to hold Jesus. You know, there's another story that tells a similar scene, but a very different conclusion than Felix here. Almost the same word shows up in Acts chapter 16 to the Philippian jailer. He's confronted with the reality of the gospel. The text says he was afraid. He was terrified. Same group of words it says here from Felix. But an eternally different outcome resulted. Felix felt the reality of sin. He saw the reality of God's glory. He saw the righteousness of God. He felt his own sin. He felt the weight of God's judgment do him. And he, he suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. And he sent Paul away. And he walked away. Ensuring if he never changes course, if God's grace never comes again, ensuring that he will spend eternity away from God. But the Philippian jailer, hearing that same message, that same reality, was confronted with that same truth. He said, what must I do to be saved? The gospel truth gripped his heart. He responded by faith. And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Repent of your sins. Trust received the great love of God for you in the gospel. Beloved, if you don't know Christ this morning, 
consider Him. I'm not putting before you a mere Christian idea. I'm setting before you an eternal truth that everyone has to grapple with. How can you stand a sinner before a righteous God? Upon what basis will you stand before God and have any right to be in His presence? The Bible says there's only one. And it's what we witnessed in that baptismal water. His life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. The sinless Son of God would come and live a life we should have lived and die a death we should have died in our place as our substitute and He did not stay dead. He rose again and He has victorious resurrection power that He offers us through His Word. If we will see our sin, see God and repent and cry out to Him. That's before you today, beloved. If you don't know Jesus and you're convicted by your sin today, you are responding. How will you respond? Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved today. Christian, we too. Trust in Christ. See the love of God for you. That He would lay down His life for us. And for Christians, we're going to transition now to the Lord's Supper where we get to Walk out through the means of grace what God has given us through the Lord's Supper to live out the reality of the Gospel. If you're not a Christian today, we love you, and because we love you, we don't invite you to come to ushers, you can come forward. We don't invite you to come to the table because we want you to come to Christ. If you are a Christian today, we invite you to do as was called from in the text today. Consider your sin. Repent of your sin. Receive the grace of the Gospel again today. Offered to us for the death of Christ on our behalf. We pray these men are going to pass the supper. They'll bring it to you. Hold on to the elements. I'll come back up and lead us in taking them in a minute. We want you to reflect. Take seriously the reality of God on your life, the sin of your own heart. Trust in the gospel for you. Father, we love you. We thank you. For a text, Lord, we thank you for the truth of Paul. We thank you for the reality we see here of his clear witness of the gospel, the truth of who He is. We thank You for the, the message of the Gospel, the clarity of it, the boldness with which He speaks it. And God, we see this sad picture of a man named Felix. And God, guard our hearts. I pray anyone in this room who hears, feels the conviction of their soul today would not suppress that truth and unrighteousness but would respond by faith, by repentance and faith and obedience to You. If that's their first time today, I pray they would cry out to You for salvation in Your Son, confessing their sins, and You would draw them to Yourself. And Lord, if that's just us for Christians daily, help us to lay ourselves before You and trust in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. God, we love You, we thank You, in Your name we pray, Amen.